greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome, Welcome back. back. <laughs> All right, kids. So we just spent our last episode uh, working our way through the Shire <laughs> in part one of the books you claim to have read. But we got another one here for you. And there were a lot to choose from. There were. Right? We could have chosen Tale of Two Cities. Or Great Expectations. Jane Eyre. Jekyll and Hyde. All of them. All like, of Pretty them. much every epic novel ever written. Other than Les Mis. Yep. And while we will probably cover many of those, uh, we decided to pick one that I think neither of us really knew no. before we went into this. And again, tipping our hat to our lovely executive producer, Stephen Weston there, because I don't even think I realized that this was a Broadway show. <laughs> <laughs> Showed up on the list. I was like, didn't that happen in foreign lands? Like, <laughs> that's not a here. That's a Broadway? So, uh, Christina, should we Let's tell them what this one is? It. You ready? All right. Yeah. And... Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina. The first uh, official like novel by Mr. Leo Tolstoy. Yes. Um, and one of the saddest novels ever written. Ever. Ever. Anna Karenina opened in 1992. Music by Daniel Levine. And uh, lyrics and book by Peter Kellogg. And uh, you want to give them the plot, Bobby? Oh, do I get to do the plot you on this one? You get to do the plot on this one. All right. Based on the classic 1877 Leo Tolstoy novel of the same name, Anna Karenina focuses on the tragic title character, a fashionable but unhappily married woman, and her ill-fated liaison with Count Vronsky, which ultimately leads to her downfall. So yeah, this, this show I've found really interesting, I guess, because it was yeah. done at Circle in the Square. Which, when this premiered, wasn't really known. I don't know if you you saw this in your research. They hadn't really done a ton of musicals there before this. I think one of the... No, I think this might be one of the first. Yeah, I think... I don't know how many exactly, but I know that before this was infamously, I think, Teeny Todd, which was the 80s revival Uh, of Teeny Sweeney Todd with like no sets or orchestra. Um, it was actually the fourth, fourth musical ever to premiere uh, at Circle on the Square. Interesting. And, and Circle on the Square had been open for a while by that point. Just lots of yeah. plays. But lots of plays. anyone who's been in that space, it's really small and it's in, in the, the round. round. So the idea of doing this musical, especially like pre, pre like really big um, engineering, I guess, on Broadway, like just feels strange to me because it's an epic book with an epic story. So I would assume that there'd be like big epic set and costumes would be really intense, you know, like. Yeah, it's 1992. And this is clearly inspired by Les Mis and the other epic novel that's 
a huge Phantom of the Opera is still running on Broadway. Yeah. But this is in the shadow of both of those. And not only are those epic musicals based on epic literary works, they are epic stage productions. Yeah. And this one, I think, had an orchestra of seven. Yeah, it was really and tiny. They had no set. It, no set for Anna Karenina for a thousand page novel yeah. <laughs> turned Broadway musical. Well, and is, how do you do, you know, spoiler alert, she kills herself at the end by throwing herself in front of a train. But like, how do you do that scene without a set and without any sort of effects? I, apparently you don't. because aye, aye, aye. I mean, this show, it's fascinating because I think that Broadway had kind of had its fill of these type of musicals. Mm. So I think no matter what they presented at this point, I think the critics had something to say. And I and they were pretty vicious when it came to I mean, one of about, my favorites was worst part of the night was that my seat was nailed to the floor facing the stage. <laughs> I mean, there I think it was in the New York Times that compared the score to um here's one of my favorite quotes. The most that could be said for Mr. Levine's score is that it has several pretty tunes, but in harness with Mr. Kellogg's lyrics, they often seem like numbers from a forbidden Sondheim. Oh. Um, yeah. And those those are some of the nice ones. I like they Yeah. Yeah, man. I uh I found I found a filmed version of like the original so there was a woman who did all of the workshops as Anna Melissa Erico Yes Melissa Erico she had done all the workshops as Anna but she was really really young she was only like 21 or something right. um and so when they took it to Broadway they replaced her, but she was the understudy. And yeah, and she played Kitty, the smaller role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was asked to come to this 54 Below thing and talk about her time with it and then perform one of the songs that Anna would have sung. And she just had these really funny stories about like her having to jump through a hoop skirt on stage <laughs> as part of her staging and how one at the same time that she was doing Anna Karenina, she was in final callbacks for the revival of My Fair Lady. For Eliza. Which she eventually did. Which she ended up doing. But she had actually been let go halfway through the callback process and was like, no, we're not going to go with you. But then for some reason, those producers decided to come see Anna Karenina. Yes. As yes. They see this moment where she dives through the hoop skirt. And this particular night, she got stuck. Her wig it got, got stuck. Her wig. Oh in the hoop skirt as she was like fighting to get out while still singing her song perfectly. And apparently that's what put her back in the running for Eliza, which she ended up booking. Um, right. And I just love that story. I just think there's something really magical about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, so speaking of the workshops, this show was done by this team, you know, Kellogg and uh, Levine, who had been in the BMI workshop. And so it spent two years going through the BMI musical theater workshop, which was very much, uh, you know, a evolution of what Michael Bennett created when he invented the workshop for mm -hmm. a chorus line. And, you know, so a lot of musicals in the 80s and 90s went through these various uh, workshops. The BMI still exists today, but for a Broadway show to come out of that is kind of cool. Mm. And for someone like Melissa, who would end up becoming a big Broadway star, to get to star in these obviously too young, you know, she's going to take a smaller part in the Broadway show uh, to kind of be a part of that evolutionary process of a new musical like that is kind of cool because 
Christina, you and I have been in lots of workshops. and So many. We did not get to star as Eliza Doolittle on Broadway. Nope. So, <laughs> um, I thought that was pretty fascinating uh, that she still got to do the Broadway show, um, even yeah, though they I replaced agree. her. You know, that was really cool. But she was replaced by Anne Crum, who was famously beloved for the original Broadway production of Aspects of Love, mm. you know, who famously replaced Sarah Brightman when it, you know, came to Broadway because Sarah was supposed to do that role, I believe. Oh, okay. And Crumb ended up starring in it. So, yeah, the music is interesting. They compare it a lot to Sondheim in these reviews. Uh, in that video from Jennifer Ashley Tepper's show, yeah. there was another review quote, and I couldn't find the review to find exactly what it said, but it compared the show to Sondheim a lot to a little night music, Yeah, but it was like not good Sondheim in the way that falsettos was not good Sondheim. And I was like, wait a second, what are you talking about? Yeah, like, that, that particular review kind of irked me slightly, especially because falsettos was in this Broadway season. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, and I don't consider William Finn to be Sondheim. Not even I find them to be very distinctly different composers. So Yeah, I do as well. I don't know. There was something, the music is really beautiful and has this melancholy feel to it, which makes sense completely with the style of the show, the book itself and, and what it is. I wish I could have found a recording of Kitty stuff because that all sounded comedic and I would have liked to have heard the differences. Well, and just to hear Melissa's brilliant, you know, mix, that's why I don't understand the Sondheim connection. There are some Sondheim-esque songs. The mm -hmm. opening number on a train is and um, the In a Room, that song in the first act is very Sondheim. But otherwise, it's got those pop influences and Kitty's stuff, it, it, she's got that beautiful... <laughs> bright mix it, we don't see it a lot anymore and it, it's such a magical thing i think in musical theater that gives you that variety it's not all just sopranos in these right. classical pieces you know it brings some of that stuff into the into the nasal cavity and into the chest a little bit you know totally yeah it was um i thought the music was again it was beautiful it just didn't capture me the way you would mm -hmm. want an epic a musical based on an epic book to capture you. I mean, that's why, right? you know, I, we've all heard Christina's feelings on Les Mis. It's not my favorite. But at the end of the day, that music is very captivating. <laughs> at the end of the day. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't I do the puns around here? Um, <laughs> but like, you know, like at the, at the end of the day, um, you remember those songs. You remember those melodies and you use them in jokes and I could right. not sing back any of the score to you if I tried you know no, I, I don't think I could have I've I listened to about five different versions of nothing has changed which is the song that Melissa Erico sings in that concert and Crumb sang on Broadway and people perform in their recitals and stuff like right. there are girls singing it on YouTube um Melissa's is good Anne's was fantastic, it, shockingly, with that seven-piece orchestration, but I couldn't sing it for you now. I, mm -mm. I'm like trying to in my head, and I'm like, oh, I don't really remember any of that melody. So I'm, and I'm right there with you on it. that's a problem for a Broadway show, right? You want at least one of the songs to be an earworm, and for people to walk out singing it. That's important. But this, this show, ironically, has had a life post- <laughs> 
Broadway. In foreign lands. Where it only had 18 previews and 46 performances. Right. One of them being in Japan in 2006. And then there was an official recording done finally in 2007. Right. Where Melissa Erico went in and sang for Anna. And then Greg Edelman, who I love. Yes. As Liv Levin. Yeah, who he played on Broadway. Right. And then Brian Darcy James. Oh, God. As Vronsky. You know, and then it had... The rest, and then you also had Carrie Butler. This must have been young Carrie Butler, I guess, as Kitty, Kitty. which is a great choice, right? Well, look, this is it's Tolstoy, and this is a story that's been adapted to every medium under the planet. It's been ballets, it's been operas, it's been uh, for television, it's been movies, it's been straight plays. This is not the only musical version, so there's lots of versions of it of these two shows that we've covered. You know, the books you claim to have read, you know, at least we all kind of know the world of J.R.R. Tolkien or have seen the movies. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, I don't I don't know anybody who's been like, I've read Anna. I mean, truthfully, I've read Anna Karenina. You know, I think it's we know of it. And I think maybe some people have seen the movie with Kara Knightley. But I don't know if it's one that Americans have a sensibility to give any kind of like insight on. You know? Yeah, no. I mean, I remember in high school, there were several girls who like wanted to be really cool and edgy who were like, yeah, Anna Karenina. Like, I've read it. And it's just like everything you want out of life. <laughs> oh <my laughs> you know? God, oh yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, we almost got another version on Broadway or at least part of it. Uh, I don't oh, know really? if you saw this in your research, but the entire time I was listening to it, I was getting a little Sondheim. I was going to getting a little, you know, um, Bubil and Schoenberg a little bit. But what I was really kind of getting is it wanted to be Frank Wildhorn. And that's when I was like, did he ever do this? And he almost did. Him and Steven Schwartz almost wrote an Anna Karenina once. Him and Steven Schwartz. Yes. It's but it wasn't gonna be the full show, at least at first. It was part of their magical romantic series where they were gonna write mini musicals based on epic love stories and so there was going to be one based on adam and eve and and he was going to choose a different lyricist with each one and there was going to be one based on anna karenina and there was going to be one based on uh this and that and one based on bonnie and clyde and that's the one that became a broadway musical right how fascinating so i don't know if they ever wrote that mini musical together but it was announced at one point i found which i would be interested in that yeah, I would I'd be interested hear that. in that one. Why do you think that we keep trying to put these epics on stage? Do you think it's strictly because Les Mis and Phantom were so successful? Or do you think there's something else to it? I think part of it is, you know, when Phantom of the Opera is still running on Broadway 30 years later, you know, <laughs> um, plus, it's hard to not want to replicate that. Because if if you're an investor and you are looking at things at face value, that show has run longer than all the things you know so if you wanted to make money to buy yourself a new mansion every year for 30 years then why why not do that but i think the other driving force is our industry and we've gotten better about it but there is such a big judgment about adapting films to the stage and so i think there's this longing for the yesteryears of adapting novels again but as we've mm. discovered on this podcast a novel does not make a good musical no always. no 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 so i think i think it's a little bit of um looking back at a time period that i don't even know 
exist, you know? I, I don't weigh your feelings on it. I don't know. Part of me thinks it's because these epics are about epic things, which is a great catalyst for musical drama. Right. You know, um, I think that the problem is, as someone who did see Tale of Two Cities on Broadway before it closed. You did. Is that the problem is, is that they're all really dark and depressing. So unless you can find the glimmer of hope that runs through the storyline that you can build off of. So that way your audience still leaves with something happy in their hearts. Right. I, I don't know how it works, you know? No, I, I agree. Look, I mean, th- it's one thing to look at the epic novels on their own. And then it's another to look at epic Russian literature, which is its own ball of wax. And then it's another thing to look at Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one show that I even admired, and it technically flopped on Broadway. There are reasons other than financial reasons why it did. But Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, that is based on War and Peace, but it's based on one chapter. So instead <laughs> of, let's do all thousands of the pages, let's just, let's focus on this part, you know, and do it in a creative way where you're an, a part of the experience and you actually immerse yourself in this Russian storytelling right? where it's not even just we're sitting in a proscenium watching the show and watching the story. It's like, you know, you're, you're almost a part of it. Natasha and Pierre, I think, gets a lot of things this show didn't get. And that could have easily been staged in Circle in the Square, honestly. You know, oh, it yeah. wasn't, but it could have been. Do you think that the fact that Natasha and Pierre was immersive theater, do you think that helped? I think so, because if I had, because I we, I almost worked on the Broadway production. We left a week before the first preview, mm-hmm. um, me and and Rich, who I was working for, the Broadway producer. I think that if the show had been presented without that element, even with them focusing on one chapter, I think there was too much to follow. Like, I I couldn't even tell you exactly what the story of Natasha Pierre and the Great <laughs> Comet of 1812 was. And I've seen the show multiple times. So. Right. Have you, I mean, have you ever seen it? I haven't. I mean, I've heard the music, but I, have, okay. I haven't seen it. I just knew okay. that it was immersive and there was this this sense of like feeling like the show was happening around you. Yeah, but, you drank with the actors and it was yeah, sort of bang. That sounds That's good, good to me. But That's- yeah, no... Anna Karenina, to me, just doesn't... There's so much that happens in that book, in that story. It just feels like it... There's, like you said, unless you're going to focus on one section, mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel like you're going to be able to get that all into a two-hour show where half of the time is taken up by the musical element, right? Right. No, and I, I think that's a complaint a lot of the reviewers had, too, is that it was like the the comic book version of... Anna you know. Right, which uh, that's really hard to believe. So this Broadway season had some, it was interesting. It was Guys and Dolls. Which was huge. Yeah. Also huge. Man of La Mancha. Oh, and that was with with Stokes. Brian Stokes Mitchell, yeah. Yeah, that was huge too. And then My Favorite Year. Okay, well that happened. Yeah, Um, and The Visit. The play version of yes, visit. sorry, the play version. I just anytime I see the visit come up, I have to I throw it in for like, you, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Uh, do I? I don't even know who starred in that version of the play. Oh, I but, don't know. 
But yeah, I mean, there were some big shows, big spectacle shows happening. And like you said, this is also coming off the heels of Phantom is still running. I don't know if was Les Mis still running at this point. It might have been. Oh, yeah. And Cats. And Cats. Goodness. So you have these giant spectacle shows that have been around for years that are still selling out. And you're like, I'm going to do the epic Anna Karenina. And then it's minimalist. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like you're not going to get the audience you want because they're coming to see epics with chandeliers and dancing cats, you know? Or, you know, looking at, I mean, Guys and Dolls is its own thing and Falsettos was groundbreaking. But Man of La Mancha is a literary epic that is a epic musical. It's kind of the precursor. I mean, that and Oliver are kind of the precursors to Les Mis. Man of La Mancha, it's hard to beat that because that musical was able to, and maybe because it's the story of this guy in prison making up all this stuff, that mm-hmm. is very musical. Like, that is theatrical. It is. You know, there is no device for Anna Karenina. Like, yeah. what is your device to get you into the story? I mean, do you think this this could ever be revived? I don't think that this particular version could ever be revived. I think that... Okay. If a new writing team approached the material again, maybe. Okay. And again, maybe focusing on just a section of the story or I know that they said it was like comic book version of Hannah Karenina, but like maybe simplifying it and streamlining what you're trying to say. So you're actually right. focusing on her and the, you know, the triangle, the love triangle and just leave it to that. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I, I really only... I wouldn't be surprised if there's another attempt at bringing it back, but bringing it back again with new book writer, new composer and lyricist. I almost want to see like a contemporary, like she's rock screaming or something. I don't know. Like I, like I want to see like someone who's like a, I almost said Paris Hilton, but maybe that is the right, not actually, not Paris Hilton playing it, but like a Paris Hilton, maybe she's a socialite. You know what I mean? She's a, I don't know. No, that's true. That's a fair point. Rock screaming, like in in the world of, I don't know. I mean, it's been around this long and has inspired people for so long. It makes sense. Well, and you know, it, this is a story that I think will keep coming back in various mediums. So I think if there were to be a successful movie or there's actually this, I don't know if you read about this, this Netflix series um, called Anna Kay. Uh, that's going to be the first ever Russian original series on Netflix. And it's oh. going to be, but but that makes sense. A series, you can explore thousands of pages of Tolstoy over the course of different episodes. Yeah, you and know? especially with the new way of creating television right now, which is more of a mini series feel, right. right? Where you only have six to 10 episodes in a season. That makes complete sense to me. You know, take it a chunk at a time and like really dive in there and explore what the relationships between all of the characters are. And like then it it gives you the ability to like fall in love with Anna, feel sorry for Anna and sympathize with her, but then hate her at the same time, you know, and you get to go through those avenues Moments. as an audience member. Right. Yeah. And you get to actually explore these complex relationships and we can do it. We can do it in the realm of TV. That actually makes me wonder why no one's done it and I'm going to throw it out there and someone's going to steal my idea and make millions of dollars off of it because that's how the world works. Um, but I'm shocked we haven't had like epic musical miniseries yet. Like, I know. Or like like the, Anna Kay could be a musical miniseries. Like there's, an, uh, to me, 
Anna Karenica can sing. If you had 10 episodes to tell that story, why not? Right? Exactly. I would be down for 50 songs over the course of 10 episodes. I mean, they did try and do it with Smash. It was not. That is true. That's that is a thing. I just feel like Smash tried to do too much because they were following the network model instead of what we now would call the streaming model, you know? Right. Um, And the network model means that you have to have 22 to 24 episodes. You can't do less. And look, that's just exhausting things at a certain point when it comes to a musical series, right? Right. And it's just about rearranging what expectations are in a musical series because we have yet to do it truly successfully yet. You know, I guess you could say Glee was successful, but it was Glee was more of a review situation, right? Right. Doing an original musical series takes proper foresight and and the ability to really edit. I want someone to take an epic story in six episodes and write the entire dang thing and film it at once and let's binge it. Yes. Without the network being like, we need to add a song for Krista Rodriguez because you know we have she her. got. <laughs> we got her. Oh, Liza's here this week. Let's do it. You know? Yeah. Like, I know. Yeah, Anna Karenina. I think maybe a concert one day. The fact that we got this cast album in 2007 means that there's interest. I think people do have fond memories of it being Melissa Erico's first Broadway show. Anne Crumb's involvement, Greg Edelman, things like that. Maybe a concert. Maybe encores. This yeah. is an encores kind of show. Oh, yeah. I, I could definitely that. see that. Yeah. But no, that makes I, sense. I don't... I don't see Roundabout pulling it out and being like, and Vanessa Hudgens is <laughs> Anna Karenina. <laughs> oh, no. I, I think we've about exhausted her. I mean, you know, if you want to hear more about Anna Karenina and her adventures, um, there are many pages you can read in, <laughs> by Leo Tolstoy himself. Yeah, I think that wraps up our mini episode on Anna Karenina. So be sure to check us out on all the social media at my favorite flop as well as our website, www.myfavoriteflop.com, where you can get merch and read about all kinds of fun things in Bobby's mystical, magical cabinet of mysteries. And of course, you know, go back and listen to all the fun episodes from season one. We did, in one episode, didn't we do like like six different shows, eight different shows? Yes. Yeah, that happened. So go back and listen to it. And after you listen to us completely exhaust all of our brain power, click that subscribe button so that other folks out there can find our show uh, and become flopaholics just like you. Christina, they should all tune in in a couple of weeks for our next episode. And what is our theme on that one? We are doing legendary leaders. Legendary leaders. I wonder who they could be. I don't know, Bobby. You're going to have to tune in to find out, kids. All right, Christina, you got any parting words for our listeners? How does Anna Karenina improve her punchlines? How does Anna Karenina improve her punchlines? Trains. But, um... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.